Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. I am so happy to introduce Rebecca Raskin. She is an editor at HarperCollins and a delightful human being. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us how you got started. Yeah. So like, I always knew that I wanted to work with words. And so like I I studied English in college, probably like the vast majority of publishing people. But I didn't know if I wanted to do books or I wanted to do magazines. Before I graduated high school was when Condé Nast stopped their internship program. So I was kind of like, you know what, it seems a little easier to get into books because there's, you know, there are internships and there's sort of a path that feels a little clearer. So I wound up interning at a couple literary agencies in college and then graduated a semester early and applied to a bunch of publishing jobs and got a job at Kensington. And yeah, started from there. But just to tell us more about you, what do you do when you're not working? I have so many grandma hobbies. I'm like a 95-year-old on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Did. Awesome for COVID to be, you know, like a nana True. deep down. Yeah. I feel like I was kind of weirdly prepared for this. Um, like I knit, I crochet, I embroider, I bake. Like I I had a sourdough starter before the pandemic started. So before I was like was ready cool. to go. <laughs> and I have a dog. So we do a lot of walking together and she sleeps all the time. She's a basset hound. So you know, oh, I sort of I sit love near her. Basset hounds. They're the best. She's the best thing ever. She howls at me all the time. And I love it. I can't even get mad at her, even though she's being really loud. <laughs> and then yeah, and I also like do CrossFit and stuff like that. So it's like super grandma hobbies and then like crazy weird hobbies. What would you do in an alternate universe with no publishing? I would probably be a marine biologist and study sharks or like be in a deep sea submersible somewhere, like, you know, recording weird animals. And like, I don't know, because vampire squid are basically the coolest thing ever. They're like little squids with light up rave gloves. It's kind of adorable. But also like when they open up to eat something, the like their mouth is terrifying. So I love that kind of stuff. I'm sorry, light up rave gloves? Yeah, they have like, they're bioluminescent at like the tips of their tentacles. So it looks like they're, they're like in a little rave. that sounds like the perfect picture book quick somebody grab grab a pen (laughs) definitely the the picture book should not have any sort of like mouth shots because like on the inside they're definitely horrifying (laughs) (laughs) um rebecca you were talking about how you grew up in the south and Mm -hmm. by the ocean i think when you do that like it's just like you're when you look at the ocean every day it is like that mysterious you know what's in the depth so that feels like a real natural interest and the sharks, the sharks. Mm-hmm. The sharks are so cool. Um, They're so I, cool. I, I scuba dive. And the first time that I saw a shark in a dive, I got so excited. I sort of shrieked into my regulator and I frightened <laughs> the shark and it like swam away really fast. And it was super bad. Um, and when we came up, the dive guide was like, yeah, you, can, you can't just like, you can't do that. You're going to frighten all of the, the animals. And I was like, but I was so excited. Oh, oh. <laughs> so Rebecca, can you tell us something you've changed your mind about in your time in the industry? 
working with fiction, actually. So I sort of went into publishing, I think, like a lot of people thinking that I wanted to do literary fiction and started working in commercial fiction, which was really, really fun. But because I spent so much time working in fiction, I started reading less fiction because it just sort of felt a little bit like work. And I wound up reading a bunch of nonfiction. And it kind of clicked that basically working with nonfiction is, it's like going to school 24-7. And you have experts who have to respond to your emails and your questions about their expertise. Um, so yeah, I thought I went in not thinking at all that I would want to do nonfiction, but now it's, I, I love it and I can't really, I mean, I have a couple fiction books on my list, but yeah, it's, it's like a very different experience to edit fiction. So tell us what you're looking for. Do you have a dream submission um, that might come your way? Oh my gosh. If somebody sent me soul of an octopus, but sharks, I would cry. Oh. That would be like the best thing ever. <laughs> oh, Cy Montgomery is the most lovely human being. She called the office one time and she was just like, I can't even emulate the joy that is in her voice. But, you know, she's always just, I told her she sounds, she sounds like sunshine on the phone. And she was just like, I hugged an octopus today. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Um, oh my gosh, yeah, no, I- she's amazing. And if anyone hasn't read that book, yes, it's about octopuses but it's also about the nature of consciousness. It's really fantastic. So yes. Just octopus are awesome. Like period. Mm-hmm. Like go read it because also octopus. <laughs> yes. They're very smart. They're very interesting. They have real personalities. <laughs> All things that, um, yeah, I, I knew they were cool. I didn't know they were that cool. Right. Yeah. So definitely soul of an octopus, but sharks. Anything on the fiction side? For fiction, I definitely love like a, a really quiet novel, like one of those like 120 pagers that like nothing really happens, but they're just really beautiful and you finish reading them and you're just like, ah, like I love those. Is there a market for those right now? Good question. <laughs> you know, I think that that is like the people who who like those sorts of books, like really like them. And there's sort of like a consistent group of people who who buy them. But yeah, I mean you know, like any book, it's like, you really never know if it can go gangbusters or not. You know, you always hope, but it's, none of us have any idea. (laughs) It is nice to hear you say that you want something quiet though, because that's often something people say they don't want. And it's a good reminder that everyone wants something different. Yeah. It's, I think sometimes it's like so easy to like, to like find yourself in one of these books and just completely lose yourself and because they're so short and they're so soft, you just like become enveloped in this sort of really lovely fiction blanket. And then you're out in like two hours and it feels like, I don't know, it just feels like warm and fuzzy. Even if the book is sad, it's kind of like meditation, but reading. <laughs> I think it's interesting that that's something that I don't, I'm not really drawn to. I really love the thickest book I could find, you know, and, um, and I think, I've personally told people at the Manuscript Academy that when they have a small word count that I'm concerned. So I'm just really pleased to learn that's still going and, and like there's places for those. And, you know, like for, I'm just kind of, I'm like digging in this because I know I've screwed up, obviously telling people that I thought they needed more words for this person. Like, is there, is there like a platform that works better? Like, if you're going to be write a small, really tight, beautiful novel, should you be selling things in literary journals? Is, is there a consistent path or is it just, it is? 
I think it's one of those things where it's like platform is always nice, right? Like nobody's going to look at a platform and be like, oh, you know, we can't do this because, you know, they publish in literary journals and they have a huge Twitter following. <laughs> I <funny>. mean, <laughs> definitely How dare they. First, <laughs> but I think, and this is just something, I mean, generally with, with like submissions and stuff like that, at least for me, is that as an editor, it is my job to be an in-house advocate for a book. So if I don't, fall into it and love it like from the second word and I'm just like not so and I don't want to go to bat for it for like two three years then it's not just not for me I think it just has to be like it's such a case-by-case basis sort of thing where it's like you know you can have no platform and just have this like tiny little book that's 120 pages and the right editor is just gonna be in love with it and you know want to fight for it for three years When you talk about those two or three years of going to bat for a book, can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So when an editor gets a submission, they bring it to editorial meeting and you sort of have to convince everybody in the room that it's a good idea. And like, I mean, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you bring stuff to editorial meeting and automatically everybody is like, this is the best thing ever. Let's acquire it immediately. But (laughs) that doesn't happen often. You know, usually there's always somebody who, because reading is such a subjective experience. So it's like, you really have to be able to pitch a book to your cohort and convince enough people that, you know, they should spend money on it. And then also like, you know, take the time and bring it through the process, right? Because it's not just your editor who puts hands on the book, it's production. And I feel like production is so undervalued in this whole process and they're so important. It's like, you really want to you really want to make sure that the work that they're doing, like you care enough about a book to make sure that like every single person who lays hands on it is spending time appropriately. Right. You know, and then it's like, you have your marketing team and you have to make sure that everybody in marketing knows what the pitch is and can go to sales and go to account representatives and really sell in the book. Well, Um, and then publicity, you know, you have to help them, sort of figure out how to pitch it to, to media and stuff like that. So it's like, there's so much that goes on besides editing. You know, you are really with a book, every single step of the process from the time you acquire it to the time it goes out in the world and after, you know, so it's like, you really have to care about it because you read 400 drafts of it, but then also have to keep telling people how important it is and how excited they should be to work on it. Mm. Are there any tips for sustaining that level of enthusiasm? And how do you know you're going to keep it that long? I mean, sometimes you don't, right? And like, there are definitely times where it can feel a little frustrating to read the same thing a zillion times. But there's also that moment where you reread a chapter and you see that line that you commented on on the first draft and how much you loved that line. And you just remember that this is a book that you really care about and you really care that it's out going to be out in the world. And just sort of like remembering that kind of final moment where you're going to have it in your hands. Like that to me is the thing that sometimes sustains you through the slog of editing, especially when you have like 2000 other things that you have to do. And like, you know, you want to spend the time with the book, but like also you have 500 emails that you haven't read. Um, <laughs> I, I have a question around this and I don't think I've never asked this before and it's kind of sensitive like, does your relationship, so you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but does your relationship with the author sometimes affect how you feel about the book? So I have been super lucky that I, like, love all my authors. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I've definitely worked on books that, like, I didn't personally acquire where 
you know, some you don't necessarily have that close relationship with the author that your boss does. So it makes it a little bit different. But I mean, knock on wood, by and large, I've been super lucky to work with super amazing writers who... Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm just putting it out there for the listeners to be like, because I do feel like there's so, like, we always say this business is about energy, right? And positive energy and the way, like, you speak to other people and... And just like, once you get to that space and you have, you know, you've gone through all these hoops, just making sure that you're be like, you're understanding that everyone in this is human, you know, and that that affects everyone's, you know, opinions about the work in the end. Yeah. Don't just be nice because it's the right thing to do. Be nice because it helps you too. Mm-hmm. If, that's, like, if that's what makes you be nice, right. like whatever your motivation, just, just be nice <laughs> to people. <laughs> really. And I always tell my authors, and I mean, this is honestly true for every single industry you're in, no matter what, is that you really only have X amount of goodwill with somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, everybody has a thousand things going on. Everybody, they want to, do their best with any project that they're given. But if you're being a jerk, you have less and less goodwill. <laughs> do you have some tips for how not to be a jerk? Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Come out. laughs> yeah, I mean, I think especially because like, you know, everybody gets frustrated, right? And you always have moments where, you know, you're going to feel like maybe your editor didn't get back fast to you fast enough or like, what if they don't care about your project? And I think that a lot of, being a jerk is from like comes from a place of anxiety. Right. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that is like sometimes taking a step back and actually just sort of like going to your editor in this case and being like, Hey, like maybe like, maybe I'm overthinking this, but like X, Y, and Z thing that you said sort of hit me in a, in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Like, can we talk this through? Like I'm always the biggest proponent of like checking in with people like before anything. And I think that mitigates a lot of it. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, it's the way you say that, well, the way you say things and the tone that you use can really. So I think if you're a writer that might be unaware of your own tone, you might want to just work on that. I think that's just an interesting tip to always think about. But definitely like checking in before you get so freaked out that you might explode is a good idea. Yeah. yeah. If you're worried about something, you know, maybe write out a draft, show it to a friend, make sure it comes out nice. But I wouldn't just leave it and panic quietly because inevitably something's going to push you over the edge and you're going to send that email that you regret. So I, I feel like this is a therapy. We've hit a therapy session. It's a <laughs> therapy. Tell us about, let's hear something positive. Tell us the story of the first time you saw one of your books for sale. I think probably the first book that I worked on that I saw on sale was one of Cheryl Holland's Cozy Mysteries that I worked on at Kensington. And I don't know, it's always such a fun moment when you see a book that you worked on on sale. It's kind of surreal. And then like, you know, if you're in the acknowledgements, you pick it up, you flip to the acknowledgements and your name's there. Yeah, it's always so fun. Um, I really, the first book that I acquired, I actually haven't seen in store yet because it came out in COVID uh, or during COVID. So I haven't actually like been to a bookstore, which is kind of sad, but a friend recently sent a picture of it in a bookstore and I got really excited about it. Oh, that's so nice. When it's safe again, you'll have to go and, you know, document the experience. Yeah. I'm super excited about doing that. Um, You mentioned cozy mysteries. Can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of mysteries and mysteries versus thrillers? Sure. So cozy mysteries specifically are like mysteries where all of the gory stuff happens off the page. And they usually involve like some sort of 
craft or activity. Like there are tons of baking cozy mysteries. There, like Cheryl Holland's cozy mysteries are about glass blowing. So it's like there's always some sort of like fun aspect of it where there's like some sort of like outside mystery thing involved. Or chocolates or cats or, or cute fudge. little lambs hopping over the countryside. Yeah, or like knitting. <laughs> yes, there's so many knitting ones. And I feel you like guys, I had not I, I feel like there's so many like weird little nuances. There's so many interesting genres that we or like nuances of the genre that we haven't even like thought of as kind of like lay people, you know? Like like we were talking about canine romances the other day. <laughs> you know, and it's just like so how as a writer would you say that people should create like that pitch. Do they call it like a cozy mystery with nods to baking? Like, how do you, how do you frame that? I think that if it's like, because cozy mysteries tend to be so specific, like you definitely know if it's a cozy mystery, you know, like if there is like blood and gore on the page, it's not a cozy mystery. It's just a mystery with like a fun aspect to it. Although I do have to say there are some like really wild murders and cozy mysteries, like really gruesome and dark ones, but they just, you know, you just sort of like see it after the fact. It's not like super descriptive and like on the page. So yeah, I mean, I think that if you're writing, particularly if you're writing like a cozy mystery, you definitely, you know. (laughs) If someone's writing something that's cozy mystery-esque, but doesn't call it a cozy mystery, would you say no? Or would you just tell them it's a cozy mystery? No, I think you would just tell them it was a cozy mystery. I mean, because everyone gets so worried about that. I think, and that's like one of those things, like on our end, like even with nonfiction, right? Where it's like, you know, there, this book is has psychology in it, but it's not necessarily a, a like a book about psychology and you know stuff like that. Where it's like there, like each book has so many nuances, and it's like you know, how do you market it? How do you talk about it? And then on our side, like f- when you think about that stuff. Like when you walk into a bookstore and there are labels, like there's the fiction section and, you know, how the nonfiction section is broken out into like business and, you know, psychology or science, stuff like that. So you have these sort of broad categories, but the writer sort of only has to worry about those broad categories. On our end, we have to worry about BISAC codes, which are like those categories broken down into relatively specific things. So I would say that authors let your editor worry about that. Um, (laughs) Can you tell us what those are for? I was going to say, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. So bisect codes are usually and for like how it gets coded in like libraries and bookstores and stuff like that. So it's sort of like a back end cataloging. Like Dewey Decimal for the publishing yeah. side? Yeah. I think that's a good way to, to describe it. Sorry, I, ju- I just started dancing to the Dewey Decimal rap here by myself. <laughs> I realized I was doing it. There's a rap? <laughs> Yeah, I'll send it to you. It's 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 quite good, you know, for as a viral Dewey Decimal, you know, viral fun. I, I will not start singing it, but we can <laughs> link can put it. it in the show notes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so tell us something that isn't as scary as hopeless as writers fear it is. Hmm. I think that a lot of writers feel like we're all just like, you know, waiting for a typo to reject a book. And that is absolutely not the case. I think it's it's hard because like reading is so subjective, right? And what I'm going to love, somebody else isn't going to love, but it's never ever because of a typo or, you know, because like something in the plot is just like a smidge off, the, but that it's correctable. Like we're not waiting to reject you. We really, we really want to love things. 
Yeah, that's true. Everyone does seem to think that it's all going to be based on one comma in the wrong place. And that's very much not not how I approach things. For me, it's always a, a ratio of how much work is it to fix versus how much do I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Do you happen to have a story of a book that had something wrong with it that you loved anyway? Like, does that ever happen? Oh, yeah. So we actually sort of have like a, like we call them build-a-books, where it's like it comes in as sort of the the base of an idea and you really see something in it, but maybe it's not completely there in the proposal. And for us, then, you know, we'll have calls with the author and the agent and say, you know, how do you feel about maybe focusing on this part of the proposal versus that part of the proposal? And as an editor, like, I, I'm the sort of person who, like, I like to read chapters as they're being written. Like, it is my biggest fear that an author, like, goes out into the world and is totally freaking out about their book and feels like they can't come to me. Like, I'm your resource. Like, I don't care if it's a sentence. I don't care if it's a paragraph. Like, you're nervous. I want to see it. And as I like to tell my authors, like, you don't have to panic until I'm panicking. Like, that, that should be the metric. If I'm panicking about something, then it's time to panic. <laughs> right. So if the book plane is all over the place, look to Rebecca. And if she's not freaking out, it's fine. I was just thinking that. I was like, and if the oxygen mask flies down and she's putting it on, get your mask. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if she's going for the drink cart, get to the drink cart. <laughs> and I think this is somebody who is, like, too, like completely made of panic. Um, but... But, you know, it's easier not to panic for other people, right? More psychology. <laughs> I also learned recently that flight attendants are taught to always look calm for exactly that reason. And now I'm more worried. <laughs> I feel like I would be a horrible flight attendant then. Oh, I would be very, very bad at it. Yeah. I think I I'd think freak I'd out even at those. At it. I think you would too. <laughs> I, I would. I'd be, I'd be like, oh, hey, more coffee. <laughs> no you'd be like get in your seat get down and then you'd like pick up like a 50 pound suitcase and just like throw it in the overhead bin no problem <laughs> guys i really hate to tell you this but we're all gonna die yeah, stop, <laughs> it. stop. stop it. okay oh my god changing okay so i have to go from that point <laughs> if you were a superhero what powers would you have oh my god i would love to shapeshift that would be the coolest oh thing gosh. Because then you get a little bit of all of the superpowers. You know, you can fly, you can breathe underwater. So it's kind of a cheat. I think it's kind of a cheater superpower. You get it's like the superpower buffet. Yeah. Oh wow, that's amazing. Um, Yeah. What's something you wish writers knew about things on our side of the desk? Besides that, we don't want to just like reject everything offhand. That's a big one. I think there's. I don't know. I've seen a lot on like Twitter and stuff like that recently about how sometimes like writers can feel a little like adversarial with their editor because like their editor is sometimes like, you know, suggesting really big changes and that can be really scary. Mm -hmm. But your editor is your biggest advocate and like they're not going to suggest anything that like they're always on your side and you can always talk through something with them. You know, they're not they're not going to like fight you on something unless they really, really care about it and they really feel like it's going to make the book better. So I think that like, yeah, your editor is not your adversary. Your editor is is your cheerleader. That's lovely. <laughs> it is. It's just really nice. Let's, leave, let's end with there uh, for that question because this is the next question. I don't think we've asked in a while and I am just starting to yearn for this, like the idea of, of this so much during COVID. So can you tell us about just a really amazing like day or night in New York City in the publishing? Like 
back when there was like lunches or something amazing. Can you think of anything? Ah, uh, lunches. Yeah, I miss lunches. Oh my gosh. Because it's just fun to like sit down and, and like chat with somebody because it doesn't always have to be about work. Like, you know, I always get people to show me their like cat and dog pictures. That's my favorite. Yeah. Let's see. Fun publishing day or night. I feel like I have like a theater glamour story. Yeah. Yes, tell us. <laughs> Okay, so like I am going to caveat this with like I am the most boring person ever and I literally go home and knit and hang out with my dog. Like I am not a very like glamorous person. But this is like the story that I tell every time like I I go home and like you know a family friend is like, "Oh, you're so fancy up in New York. Like what do you do up there?" So I have a good friend who is an entertainment lawyer and I and he had an extra ticket to uh, the opening of Great, The Great Comet on Broadway. So I wound up going to the opening and the after party at the plaza. And of course, it's like sort of like fabulous to go to a Broadway opening because like, you know, everybody is super decked out and all of this stuff. And so I show a few minutes early to the opening. And I had asked, of course, like, you know, what do you wear? Because like I'd never been to an opening before. And he was like, oh, you know, just like a dress, whatever. Because, you know, I'm guys who just have to wear a suit they can't like they're like oh you know casual it's fine no definitely (laughs) and i have i have an angry note on that later but yes continue (laughs) so i mean like i showed up to this opening like dressed very nicely but like certainly not in a ball gown because i didn't realize that you had to wear a ball gown (gasps) um so i'm like standing out like across the street from this this opening like almost in tears like freaking out because like i'm dressed nicely but not that nicely but then, it, like, it wound up being fine, obviously. Like, nobody told me that I couldn't go in. So, like, the, I mean, the show was amazing. It was really phenomenal. The cast was incredible. And then, you know, the after parties at the plaza. So everybody goes to the plaza. And it's, like, completely decked out. And everybody's super fabulous and glamorous. And, like, at most of these events, like, all of the plates are so tiny. So it's, like, <laughs> when you go up to the buffet, it's, like, you can only get, like, two noodles. <laughs> And then, you know, and then it's like 10 o'clock at night and you're starving. So it's, so I went back to the buffet like 10 times because I had this like, you know, teensy tiny plate and I was really hungry. And then probably like the 10th time that I went back, the guy at the buffet was like, oh, hey, you've been back a lot. And I'm like, I know. I'm not doing well. <laughs> and you don't have a ball gown on. You know? <laughs> no, I don't have a ball gown on. And also like, I promise that I'm not just like putting food in my purse. Oh, but oh also, my gosh. Definitely. So I do. I mean, maybe this is a question for both of you, but do you own ball gowns? Like, is that like a choice no. in your closet? <laughs> no, but like run the runway. Thing. The angry note I was going to mention later is that I have now been asked twice to black tie events the same day. And I'm sure the men in the audience are like, yeah, so. However, if you've never run around looking for a black tie gown at the last minute in Macy's during prom season... <laughs> Uh, you will not understand the pain. No, I don't. I do not own a ball gown, but I have managed to rent same day. Yeah, it's like where would I put a ball gown? I live in a New York apartment. There's no space. Yeah, all the puff is really hard to store. But That's no, really funny. I, I have I have you some things that are almost black tie, but no, it, we we get to cocktail and then we tap out. Oh my gosh! Well, thank you for sharing that because I think that at this point we're all like, yeah, we'll go to the buffet with the <laughs> with a tiny plate. <laughs> Plates were so tiny. And it's like, and I realized it was because that nobody was actually eating. Um, everybody was just like mingling and drinking and like having fun. And I was like, no, I'm just, I'm hungry. I'm well, very, see, oh one thing about New York events is that it's true. There's always wonderful food and no one eats it. And one time in my early days in New York, my friends and I realized this about fashion week or fashion night out 
And so we had a map knowing that there would be food at each place and no one would eat it. So we got lots of free food at Fashion Week. That is That's so funny, you guys. I never eat at those events because I talk and talk. I'll talk to whoever is around me. And then I'm like, oh, I'm dying. <laughs> That's amazing. So Rebecca, what's your number one tip for writers? I think don't be afraid to fail. Like I know that's so, that's easier said than done, and I totally recognize that. But like you're gonna fail. Like things are like your sentence is not gonna be good, and you're gonna have to change it. Or like this plot point is not gonna work. Or you know, like all of that happens. And like the best advice that I was ever given, and this was by one of my college professors, is that every opportunity to do work is an opportunity to do work. And like that doesn't come with like all of the the like the self blame because you know if you know you could you maybe this would this paragraph would be better if you were just writing it on a different day or whatever like no like let it go every opportunity to sit down and do work is an opportunity to sit down and do work and that's it mm-hmm. so yeah fail fail yeah. often and yeah like get used to it because it's it's sort of an amazing experience and you grow from it and you learn what works and what doesn't and i wish that like as a society we were kinder about failure yeah. Well, I think in writing, you're, you're a failure till you're a success. You know, that, that it's, there's so much, you know, and, and it's, it's a message you hear, you know, you hear from your family members. And we did, we did a whole podcast on this for how to talk to your family members at Christmas about writing. Yeah. And just how it's definitely one of those things that people are like, oh, I have a book in me or, you know, get a real job or, you just know, can't upload then, on Amazon. Yeah. And so, but like, just like, given permission, given permission just to walk the steps you need to walk through to get to the next space is just really empowering. Thank you for that. So like, and people who are just like, oh, like anybody can write a book. It's right. so much harder than that. Like that drives yeah, me Sit crazy. down, start trying. <laughs> <laughs> like 75,000 words. That's a lot of words. Yeah, that's a lot, lot of words. words. <laughs> I think we should have fail publicly day. Like everyone try something new that you're inevitably going to be bad at. And we'll all see that together. I think that'd be great. Like I was watching a surfer at the beach fall down maybe every 30 seconds for like an hour. And I was loving his growth mindset. Yeah. I I have to say that honestly, like CrossFit made me realize that it's really okay to fail because I'm so bad at it. And I just go into that class and I'm just bad at it all the time, constantly. Well, I hope they're supportive about it because sometimes if you go to a dance class and you're bad at it, they're like, why are you here? (laughs) You know, it's I, I it's, it's I'd say fifty fifty. Like sometimes people are really okay with it, and then I've had like classes where you do like a partner workout, and people will be like, "Yeah, I don't want to partner with you. You aren't very good at this." <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and we should be better at supporting each other when you know things don't go the right way. Yeah, on our Facebook group, we've there's been a lot of those examples where you'll see someone have a really hard rejection, and then you know, two weeks later, they've signed, they're excited, you know, that, that this business can be like whiplash. And that's part of the fun and part of the frustration, but part of the fun. Yeah. And speaking of, if you want to join our very supportive Facebook group, you can head to manuscriptacademy.com slash Facebook. It's fun. It's free. Everyone's nice. And you can kind of watch along as people go through those struggles, but eventually make it, which has been really nice. And a ton of people in our group got offers this week, which is amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. So where can we find you online, Rebecca? On Twitter. I am very on Twitter. I think it's RJ underscore Raskin. On Instagram, uh, you can see all of my baking, which has become ridiculous. It's Raskin Reads. Yeah. And I mean, she's very good at baking. She brought me cookies that were gluten-free for my birthday. Okay. Yes. Just, when, when all of this is over, 
get ready because I have now experimented with like gluten-free lemon bars. Oh. I'm going to try like I've been doing all of this like almond flour baking stuff because like a lot of yeah. fresh bakery has almond flour. So get ready. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. We should have a manuscript academy cookbook. <laughs> or or a, a bake sale, but we mail stuff. <laughs> I would be so in fat because at a certain point, like at a certain point, I'm just like, I'm baking all of this stuff and I can't even go to the office to bring it to people. <laughs> oh, yeah. I started making jam and mailing it to people. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. gosh. I hope it makes it if they get like a little puddle of melted jam. I'm sorry. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. And we really appreciate this. This was great and so fun. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.